The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. We only have moments left to get the scepter to Joker, R2. I'm putting this thing on fast forward. As the soulful strains of the Cybertronic spree fade off into hyperspace, we bring you Droids, or In Trouble Again, a Star Wars Droids podcast, uh, the show where we explore, expound upon, and eviscerate the 1980s Star Wars animated oddity, Droids, the adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO. Uh, I am your host, William Thrasher, and here is my counterpart, Matt Shergi. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty good, Mr. Thrasher. Um, Star Wars... Droids. It's it's fun to come back and, and talk about this um, with you week after week, and it's hard to believe we're um, you know almost a third of the way through the series. Yeah, and it's and it's a pretty big demarcation because our last episode we ended with R two D two and C three PO ejecting them out into space in an escape pod. So we have the beginning here of a new story arc uh, where they have new owners and are going on a completely new adventure. Uh, and I was kind of surprised that they don't. Uh, start off. It doesn't start off with them in space. Uh, instead, this episode begins with them seeking gainful employment. So, an indefinite amount of time has happened between adventures. I mean, that could be something for a comic book, right? Tell the stories that happened in between. Yeah, I mean, well, the, I mean, that's what the, the that's what the various droids comic series have been about. Oh, okay. I never read them, so that's. Makes sense. That's good to know. I'm not particularly uh, fond of the one that uh, Dark Horse did in the 90s. And I think Anthony Daniels wrote a, a few of them too, right? I I will have to. Do- I'm not aware that he did. I will have to. I will have to double check on that. If anything, he at least wrote introductions to some of those comic collections. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure yeah. he did. So, so the the Lost Prince. Um, one thing that's surprising is you think like, oh, you're going to meet this prince in the beginning of the episode. But really, the title is a spoiler of sorts. For, yeah, for some stuff that happens much, much later. Uh, in, instead, just like the previous uh, arc, we begin on a desert planet. Uh, and so this this brings up some, something weird. So R2-D2 and C-3PO, they, we, we're always used to seeing them having owners. They, you know, C-3PO always refers to the person who's ordering them around as their master. And this episode begins with them going to a diner that an agency has sent them to. So I got to wonder, is that a droid employment agency? Are they like, are they currently now owned by a company that rents droids? I mean, uh, droids, what do droids need money for? I'm I'm thinking about that right now. Well, repairs, maintenance. I suppose. So it sounds like, yeah, there is a droid uh, temp agency. Um, 
that that it's a detail that's just sort of passed over is uh, a bit unfortunate. Maybe we'll find out more about this agency in other episodes. I'm not sure, but it's it, it is an interesting concept in that we start in the middle of things. It's kind of in true Star Wars fashion. I mean, lest you recall people going to the theater in 1977 for the first time to see Star Wars, didn't know what the hell is happening, and it starts in the middle of a big fight scene between two uh, two forces. So George Lucas loves to start stories like right in the middle when everything's happening. He also and, loves the 1950s, uh, and the place where R2-D2 and C-3PO are now employed is Dudnik's Cafe, a 1950s diner in outer space run by an alien with four arms. And Dudnik's Cafe is a dead ringer for that cafe in Attack of the Clones. Oh yeah, uh, Dexter Jetster's Cafe. It really does prefigure that. Even Dexter Jexter also had four arms, yeah? Yes, yes, he did. Looked looked a little different, but uh, conceptually very similar, where, um, yeah, George Lucas has a hard-on for the 1950s, and with, um, you know, waitresses on roller skates serving milkshakes and cheeseburgers and that Art Deco thing. Um, it's a real American graffiti. Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah, you can't put it better than that. In fact, there is a, um, I think Lucas was somewhat involved with a, a chain of restaurants that I've only seen in California called Mel's, after Mel's Drive-In or what. It's the same name of the restaurant as in the American Graffiti movie. Huh. But the food itself, I was in there once on a vacation, and um, uh, the food is, is just like a, oh, uh, what, what do you call that chain where they do the 19, where you have the jukebox at the table? and The Johnny Rockets? Yeah, yeah, it's just like a Johnny Rockets. Huh. But it has an American graffiti veneer on it, and you have, like, posters from the American graffiti movies and so forth. Hmm. Very strange. I don't know why you'd make that into a restaurant chain, but... I guess somebody had to. <laughs> I, I suppose so. So, yeah, Dude Nick's Cafe, and what is it that our uh, two droids are doing at this cafe? You say they're doing work. They're, they're serving food? But, yeah, right? they're, they're doing, they're, they're the wait staff. So we have, uh, we have C-3PO uh, taking orders and serving food. We have R2-D2 just delivering food to tables. Uh, and very early on, they get a pretty rough customer, uh, a character by the name of, uh, the, the, who will turn out to be the villain of this episode, uh, Kleb Zellock. Uh, who is a pretty well-known and feared gangster, takes a seat in one of the booths uh, and then is met by a purple alien named uh, Solag Den. And a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happens here because they do, they, you know, they, they establish Kleb as a a man to be feared. uh, And, uh, Solag is negotiating with him that there's a, there's a person named Mon Julpa that Solag wants to find. And, Connecting this to other Star Wars things, Kleb mentions that other bounty hunters are looking for this person, including IG-88. Right, who was the uh, bounty hunter that looked like a a skinny sort of pencil robot from uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, he was the droid, uh, the bounty hunter who was also a droid. And that's that's just kind of a fun fun little little thing, Uh, although I, I... I wonder, like, if you if you had seen this when you were a kid, would you have known who IG-88 was if his name had been mentioned? No, I don't even think they mentioned his name in the movie, right? It's only in the action figure that gave him his name, mm-hmm. as is the case with so many Star Wars characters, including Ewoks, 
Um, so yeah, yeah they, no, I would not. Yeah, not the only bounty hunter named in the movies is Boba Fett. None of the others go and get. None of the others have uh, names mentioned in the movie. I'm not even sure if they're named in the credits. I feel like even in the credits, it's just like Bounty Hunter One, Bounty Hunter Two. Uh, J.W. Rensler wrote an excellent trilogy of thick hardcover uh, coffee table books on the making of the original Star Wars trilogy, and um, in there he mentions on the set. The other than Boba Fett, they did not have names, and they would refer to them as like diaper head, or or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, that's so. that's sort of a secret of, of Star Wars is in production. At least back in the day, I feel like with all the world building that goes on, it wouldn't happen now. Mm. A lot of the characters weren't referred to by a character name because they didn't have one. Uh, they would just be referred to by by just a prominent feature. Which sometimes would become their name, like uh, infamously uh, Yak Face in uh, Jabba's palace is was referred to as Yak Face for quite some time. I think it took until the 90s for that character to get a real name. <laughs> My favorite stupid Star Wars name is for a background character in Revenge of the Sith, played by George Lucas, called Papa Noidia. Oh, yeah. N- n- never uh, mentioned as much in the film. And then later he was on an episode of Clone Wars, Unfortunately, not voiced by George Lucas. Oh man, <laughs> that would have been great. Pro- it's a missed because George Lucas did voice himself on uh, some of the um, robot chicken stuff. That would have been awesome. All right, so there's something I want to I want to talk about uh, right here and now. So I've spent a lot of time on this podcast praising the animation of this series and and talking about how it kind of prefigured the animation renaissance of the '90s. Having now revisited a lot of other animated fare from this time period, particularly the Mighty Orbots and Kid Video, I think I may have been a bit too generous with my praise for the animation, Mm. especially in this episode. In this episode, a lot of the limits of this show's animation become very, very obvious. And there's also like a, 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 num- a number of flubs. Uh, you know, we see ships flying backwards in this episode. We uh, see a lot of real stiff, unnatural character movements. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, th- I think I over I overplayed my hand. I overstated the case as far as the quality of the animation uh, of this show. Now, it's still above average. It is still above average for the time, and would remain so for quite some time. But I did want to point something out. So, uh, Kleb Zelik, he has a really neat character design. He's short, he's rotund, he wears this bodysuit, and he has this, he wears this, like, it's part visor, part breathing apparatus with, like, tubes going into, like, an armored nose plate. And he has a very distinct mouth. No character has his mouth. And one thing that stands out is whenever there's a close-up on his face, his mouth movements are... get more detailed, more fluid animation than anything else we've seen in the show to date. So we were talking before the show, you think his mouth movements might be lifted from something else? Yes, and that's what on? I wanted to point out. So one of the things that Nelvana had done before droids is that they had done a rock musical called Rock and Rule. Uh, and there's a character in that named Groon, who's the villain. And if you look, his lips or Kleb's lips are the exact same shape as Groon, and also he has the exact same teeth. I think they reused Groon's mouth charts for Kleb Zelok, and that's why his mouth movements are so well animated. 
Yeah, it's it's a real neat touch. Uh, the way the character looks reminds me vaguely of um, how I imagined Baron Harkonnen from Dune. You know, I could totally see that, and that could be like a spice breather that he's wearing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, it's um, not but- Groon, it's Mock. Mock is the name of the villain from Rock and Rule, uh, played by Don Franks. Right, and I, I do like how, as a character, it's so different from kind of the, the gangster-godfather dynamic, the more formality we had with the villains in the initial story arc of the show. Yeah, and and I just love that he also he still looks like he could have stepped out of Star Wars. Like he looks he looks like he would have been an intriguing background character in the Cantina. But unfortunately, uh, the the droids get fired, so they need some money and they place themselves for sale. Yeah, and they end up going to a, they end up going to a droid auction, and uh, one of the. And this is this is another, there's there's this weird looking sort of amalgam of parts that's referred to as a as a cyborg. They end up getting sold in a lot with the cyborg uh, going to this uh, young young far boy named Jan Tosh. Uh, uh, there is a. Uh, <clears throat> And they're oh, and who who after picking up the droids and the cyborg is chased by Klebzilla's goons uh, for reasons that don't become clear until later. Um, and this brings up an issue: How are they defining cyborg? What is a cyborg in this show? Hmm. So yeah, Star Wars uses the term droid all the time, uh, short for android, of course. But yeah, cyborg. I don't know where that line would be, and I can't think of other Star Wars things off the top of my head where they use the term cyborg. I don't, um, I, as I, rec- I don't believe they ever use it. I mean, we know they exist. You know, Darth Vader is infamously more machine than man. We've all seen Lobot, but it's it's a term. It's a term no one uses, and it's and you know you think as it being partially organic, you would assume that it would be on a higher rung in the social order than a droid, but it seems to be on a on a lower order. But it kind of doesn't matter because it turns out it's not really a cyborg. It's this strain. When they get back to uh, Jan Tosh's farm with his grizzled old prospector uh, uncle, uh, it turns out that it's not a cyborg. It's it's a purple alien disguised as a cyborg. He's just wearing droid parts. And he's in it, real bad yeah. shape. He can barely speak. He can barely move. But they, they nurse him back to health. And he becomes, uh, and he and he starts helping out in their mine. They're mining this, uh, they're mining this this rare mineral uh, power source, Negron fourteen. And and the only clue we get as to the purple alien's identity is that he speaks one word, which is like a, a bocce word meaning like one who returns. He says Kizaban, right? Yeah, Kizaban. And, so and so they just refer yeah, to him and as they Kizaban. Him that. Yeah. Um, so. They're using uh, aliens for manual labor in the mines, and also there's a character that's uh, a bit of a prospector. Yeah, that would be Jan's uncle. Who looks like something out of a... Gee, he really looks like the the bad toy out of Toy Story 2. He, he kind of does look like Stinky <laughs> Pete from Toy Story 2. There's, uh-huh. a, there's a real Lee Marvin-ness about him with his unshaven jowls and his, his uh, mustache. It just really goes to show they're really pushing the Western angle, the Wild West angle, um, with with elements of the storyline. But as far as characters go, Jan Tosh, uh, at least what we've seen so far, I'm not that thrilled with him. He he just seems a bit bland. His design uh, with the headband looks, you know, kind of typical stock 80s cartoon hero. 
Well, he, it, he looks like he stepped right out of the West End Star Wars role-playing game. Yeah, no, that's well put. And old Jantaj, like, I, I just don't know what, what to think. It, it, it's hard when you have the character in charge of your droid be one person, as opposed to in the first story arc, you had uh, two characters that took on the droids, and when you have two characters, you can have more drama between them, but Jan is a bit bland. Any any thoughts on that, or... Well, I mean, he's just kind of, he's just sort of generic, budding, dashing hero type. There's really, aside from the fact that, you know, he, he, he takes pity on and cares for this alien that's just kind of stumbled into his life. Aside from, you know, aside from wanting to help people and having that kind of sense of, ch- of charity about him, there's nothing yet that distinguishes him from Luke Skywalker or any of the other uh, young male heroes we've seen on the show. Right. Oh, so this is something that happens. So um, at at some point, it dawns on them that uh, this perp, this that he is the same species uh, as the uh, as the alien that was meeting <clears throat> that was meeting with Kleb at the diner. So they all go back to the diner uh, to see if they can dig up any information about this strange alien. And this is a couple of things happen on this return to the diner. One, the Max Rebo band is playing at the diner. I think that's a nice touch. The Max Rubo band is the uh, series of sort of giant, like, dome-shaped head um, aliens that played at the cantina. No, that's Fergandian and the modal nodes. The Max Rebo band is the band God from Jabba's Palace, the of the Jedi. Uh, consisting yeah. of Max Rebo, the blue elephant guy, Droops yeah. McCool, the sort of groundhog in a turban, uh, and Cy Snoodles, the weird uh, naked alien with the trunk uh, mouth, with the luscious lips. All right, I stand corrected, but yes. <laughs> but they're just kind of doing, like, they're not doing a high-energy song. It's kind of a slow, mournful song. Uh, I like to think that this is the the wonderful date I ate my mate, which is a real song that the band has, which is chronicled in all the expanded universe material. Um, but the other thing that happens is, of course, inevitably, there is a bar fight between uh, between the, uh, the droids uh, and the... Uh, and Kleb's big, uh, fuzzy alien henchman, who is not a Wookiee, he's something else entirely. Uh, but in that fight, a uh, there's this woman in a jumpsuit by the name of Jessica Mead. She helps them escape, and it's like, she gets a name and she shows up real briefly. Well, she becomes a major player in a future episode, so we are still seeing this show laying pipe and giving early introductions to characters who are going to have a much bigger part to play later. It does give the impression that they wrote like these epi- a lot of these episodes like all at the same time with how they set things up and pay it off. You know, I would love to know how this happened. Like was was this kind mm-hmm. of stuff mandated to like sneak in characters from other episodes to kind of provide a narrative flow or or yeah, or was it all just kind of a rush and so everybody like in old Marvel comic books is everybody just borrowing characters and MacGuffins from each other constantly? I am willing to bet that around this time this show was made, in the mid-80s, Lucasfilm did not have an internal full-time canon person. That, that, that's, very, that's very true. I'm sure they didn't. Aside, aside right. from Lucas, I'm sure it was just Lucas. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they do now, they have people that all they do is make sure all the, all the canon lines up, uh, especially with the, after the Disney acquisition, they've been trying to be strict on that, but they still make mistakes. Um, but yeah. that's a separate issue. Yeah, but another yeah. thing uh, worth pointing out about Jessica Mead is that within the series, she is the first uh, character of color that we've had. Oh, that's true. 
And again, she will she will go on to be a hero in her next appearance. Yep. Um, did we mention about the the sidekick to the villain in this episode? You know, we haven't really talked. We haven't yeah. really talked about him yet. Mm. But yeah, he's so. this big. He's this big. Uh, this big furry, uh, big furry yeah. alien. Actually, I'm trying to look up his. Uh, oh, named. Uh, mm-hmm. Yorpo named Yorpo Mog. Mog, and he has kind of like a pig snout. He has these big clawed fingers, and he speaks, and he speaks in this alien gibberish. You know, Every yeah, time he speaks, that's how he talks. The character almost seems a little bit like a like a bad guy Chewbacca sort of thing. Um, he pretty but, much is. Yeah, but I, I like I like him as a heavy. I mean, he's clearly a physical threat. Uh huh. And something about his look vaguely reminds me of. The big brown uh, furry giant from Labyrinth. Oh, uh, Ludo. Ludo, yeah. I I could see that. A little little touch of Ludo, but probably the the Wookiee comparison is more apt. And it's neat that we have a a, a villain sidekick that doesn't really speak in English, that just speaks in an alien language and is more of a beast. than a, than a humanoid character, yeah, and, I, and I'm sure I'm sure that the voice actor is speaking absolute gibberish. I'm sure they're not actually like translating anything into hut ease or, or anything like that. But he, he the voice actor seems to be ha- has enough care to use similar sounds in everything he says, so it doesn't sound like it's arbitrarily made up. Like you could believe that it's a language, we just don't know it. And he also doesn't do stuff like bleep, bleep lightsaber. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah, there's none of that. There's <laughs> he, he doesn't drop the phrase mind trick into the middle of a sentence. <laughs> but another thing that comes out uh, uh, in in the, that bar fight scene is that uh, is that Kleb also has an interest in uh, in the uh, Negron fourteen mines, and in fact is trying to wants to take over all the mining operations on the planet because he's working on a deal that's that's going to make him stinking rich selling it all to the empire who needs to who needs it as a, a power source for their weapons and this is when we get sort of more interesting ties to to Star Wars films because for all intents and purposes the Negron 14 is the coaxium from Solo it's an unstable mineral but it's also mm, yeah. like in its refined form it's like a weird sort of glowing crystal that's suspended spiky glowing crystal that's suspended in a tiny tube i mean it almost looks like the exact same prop from the movie i wonder if that was used as reference the the han solo movie um just called solo i believe uh it uses a lot of very deep cuts including referencing the lando calrissian novels from the early 80s i could i could see that that scene sounds like something that lord and miller would have worked into the movie before they'd been fired from it what I wouldn't give to see their rough cut that they had put together. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Maybe one day. Mm, maybe. <clears throat> but uh, you know, he does find out that uh the purple alien uh Tamazon is in fact the the alien that he's been looking for. Um so Tamazon, the robed purple alien, Jan and the droids end up getting captured by Kleb and are imprisoned in his uh, Negron 14 mine. Uh, right. So uh, they're in the mine. They've, they've built up some some drama. I like that you have these two different characters trying to uh, to get to Kezivan. 
Yeah, and this and this is when we finally we know we learn Kezaban's true identity because the uh, the robed uh, alien hands him this scepter which glows, uh, and Kezaban's memories come back. It turns out he's Manjupa, the titular lost prince. He, uh, the royal family was deposed and replaced by an evil vizier, and so they need to get so. Manjupa needs to get back to his home planet so that he can take the throne uh, and take the planet back from the vizier. Uh, so they all decide they're going to help Manjulpa escape. And when Manjulpa gets the uh, scepter, it, it reminded me a little bit of that animation in He-Man where uh, Adam of Eternia gets the sword and says, I have the power. Like, he really... Um, it's very satisfying how the character transforms from this sort of mute... They're nearly mute, kind of dullard into this uh, guy that knows exactly what's going on, and he want, he has a mission he has trying to do. Yeah, and and yeah, he does wave it over his head. And there's a bit of a flash, uh, but this is also so the 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 Negron fourteen mine. This this is another sort of flaw in the animation. They keep reusing the same establishing shot of the Negron fourteen mine. But it has the same shot of this uh, bulldozer moving uh, scree into a pit. And we just we keep seeing it over and over again. And it really just starts to become glaringly obvious they're recycling the animation. That pit's got to get full sometime. It has to get full. Also, you think the um, the outside of the mine would change over time. You'd see footprints come and go. Yeah, it 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 the uh, reuse of clips in this show is in this uh, episode in particular is really obvious pretty egregious mm-hmm. but uh in the in the end uh you know they do escape there's an elaborate chase scene involving mining droids uh and finally <clears throat> everybody rushing up to kleb's uh, escape escape craft which is loaded with uh which is loaded oh and that's the other thing the the negron in the mine is becoming increasingly unstable and the whole mine's gonna blow uh which uh kleb was counting on to destroy all the evidence of his involvement and everything but all the characters end up on this escape sled trying to get out of the mine and in the end the the sled's too heavy so the only way they can escape is by dumping all the the keshels which is what they use for money on that planet it's just dumping it all overboard and that's where we kind of get our, our laugh line uh, when they oh, well, Kleb's going to be most cross when he awakens. Well, why? Well, those were all his kessels. Yeah, not one of C-3PO's best one-liners. It, and this episode is not one of my favorites. I think you're, you're setting up a lot of this storyline with uh, Manjulpa that will pay off in later episodes. Yeah, it's... I get, yeah, it, it is most interesting for its connective tissue, not for the episode itself. The, the story is mm. pretty thin. I also kind of feel uh, upset because Kleb Zellock is such a great antagonist. I wish he had more than just this one episode. Oh, is he not in other episodes? Uh, I don't believe so. I've watched oh, a little bit surprising. ahead, and uh, I have yet to see him return. I just knocked over my microphone. Hold on. <laughs> and it's new, too. Luckily, it fell on its back. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, the the opening stuff at the diner I thought was kind of charming, and then uh, the episode kind of lost the plot a little bit, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, they're introducing a whole new set of characters. I don't think this episode is as interesting or a, as effective as the, uh, the pilot to the show, The White Witch. Yeah, it, does, it, does, it doesn't. This new story arc doesn't open with the same bang. Uh, 
it, you know, actually, it almost makes me wonder, could they have just combined this and the next episode into one more densely packed episode? Well, when they, in the, um, in, in 2005 or so, shortly after Revenge of the Sith came out, Lucasfilm did release a DVD of droids, and it took this story arc and the, um, the next story arc. Oh, the new game. kind of re, uh, the new game. And, oh, wait, is that the next episode? I'm talking about... So this is a first of a batch of four episodes, right? Yes, this is another four-episode arc. Yeah, so they took this and they re-edited it into a shorter movie. Hmm. And they also did that with the final batch of episodes, but not the first batch. Um, huh. Kind of like what they did with the video release of uh, Indiana Jones Chronicles. So I'd be curious to watch that and see how much they cut out of this first episode to get to the brass tacks and uh, move things along. Hmm. Might, might be worth, might be worth checking out. Yeah. But yeah, so we now know that, uh, Mon Julpa and Jan are going to go off to, uh, to, to Julpa's home planet to get him back on the throne. So he'll be leaving his small farm world behind. Oh yeah. And also his, uh, his uncle's rich now. Cause now with, with, uh, Kleb out of the way, his uncle controls all the Negron mines. That was a nice touch. So yeah, they've, they've got they've so they're you know, overall a happy ending, even if it is just a prologue to to a bigger adventure later on. So I guess, I guess if I had to rate this episode, I'd say mildly satisfying. <laughs> I would say below average. I don't know what scale we're using, but yeah, we um, we never really established a rating system. We never like on a scale of nope. negative one to seven Jawas. How would you rate it? Right. Um... So anyhow, yeah, I, I'll be curious to see where things go from here and how much they focus on Mon Chulpa, uh compared to some of those other characters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be it's going to be a fun little journey, I think. Of course. Well, are you ready to uh, to proceed uh, with our uh, our first installment or our next installment of Droid Eye for the Jedi? I am. So I, I did think real hard about all the different droids in this episode and which one could be a secret Jedi. And I think it would be a... Uh, there's a droid that's off-screen that we don't see. Ever? Ever. But he's he's cooking a dish that R2-D2 will serve, and the dish will be so uh, molecularly, chemically unstable that R2-D2 spills it on the characters that he does at the front of this episode. So, so you're positing not only a secret Jedi master, but a hidden Jedi master that never appears on screen, but is a master That's manipulator right. behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think we'll ever see this, uh, this droid Jedi? I think this droid Jedi is the same droid Jedi that made R2-D2 also spill food in the, uh, in one of the episodes in the first story arc. I so, think he's behind the scenes, manipulate, making food easier to spill to set certain <laughs> events in motion. So that that's his main thing, is he, he specializes in food-based pranks. Yeah, f- food-based <laughs> pranks do with midichlorian-powered um, chemical manipulation of, uh, of the food's stability. 
Well, I I think our uh, secret Jedi Master is in fact Kleb Zelok. I I think oh, okay. we're dealing with a secret Sith. Now we know he's sinister. He's he's already got that more machine than man thing going with his weird breathing right. apparatus. We know how Siths like face masks and weird breathing apparatuses. But also, and this is something we didn't get a chance to mention, he has a superpower. Every now and then he will sort of get in this stance, open his mouth, and produce this high-pitched sound that everyone else finds excruciatingly painful to the point where it pra- where it paralyzes them. I think what we're looking at is a distinct use of the Jedi mind trick. He's making people think that they're hearing a sound so painful that it paralyzes them. And because they believe that's what's happening, that is what's happening. It's a whole mind-body connection feedback loop thing. So I'm going to put Kleb Zelok forward as this episode's secret Jedi Master. And which one is the real secret Jedi Master? The world may never know. <laughs> Especially if they remain off camera. Yep. <laughs> All right, so next segment on the show, we have Expanded Universe, where we talk about non-movie Star Wars media that we've been enjoying. Uh, Matt, what have you been enjoying? Right, so I went back, uh, I thought about, you know, recently I was playing that Star Wars Nintendo game, and I thought I'd check out another one of those, and so I looked at the um, Empire Stri- Super Empire Strikes Back on the Super Nintendo. Oh, cool. And uh, it's really hard. I have not... In, um, in a good way? Uh... <laughs> It gets better as it goes along. The real trouble is uh, it follows the plot of the movie, and the opening stuff on Hoth has a lot of spiky uh, icicles. So a lot of spiky pits where you can die easy because the jumping isn't the smoothest. Hmm. And the, um, the the ice caves with the wampas and stuff are a little bit maze-like and kind of annoying. But once you get past there, it gets better on Cloud City and... Uh, especially when Luke gets Jedi powers, then you get more in your arsenal you can do when you have a special force meter. And, and that makes it sort of fun. So it, I don't think it's as good as like super star Wars or even super return of the Jedi for that matter. But it, um, it gets much better once you get off the ice planet. And uh, just like in the other games in the series, you can play as different characters uh, depending on what level you're in. Um, based on what's happening in the movie. Now, now I forget, do you get to choose which character you play, or is it just kind of set by the level? It it, it depends. You know, a lot of the stuff in the beginning, you have to be Luke. But then as, as the storyline goes to places where more characters were, uh, then it opens up. So sometimes you can I, pick. I would always. love a hack that lets you just kind of like go crazy, where like you could play Luke riding a Tauntaun, but inside the giant space worm. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Uh, it, it doesn't quite get that crazy, or even like you think, oh, you'd make, you make you could play as Yoda, but no, you can't. Um, there, there, there's a lot of, I mean, hell, even I would even like to see a video game based off uh, the excellent um, Dark Horse comics called, oh, I think Star Wars Visionaries or, or something, but it's like a what if comic on the original trilogy. Did you ever read those? Uh, no, I actually, I, I saw yeah. them on the shelves all the time. I regrettably never actually read those. It'd be probably worth checking out. Like, the, the artwork is, is so-so, but I think the writing is pretty good. And, like, in that first one, it's like, what if Luke uh, 
uh, Luke's torpedo missed missed the Death Star. Hmm. Uh, I think Empire Strikes Back is what if Luke died on Hoth before Han Solo could save him. Um, and Return of the Jedi, I don't recall what was different in in that one, but it, they do a lot of sort of inspired uh, alternate takes of those movies, and it's a, a shame they didn't do it with the prequels because I think you could get really absurd. Oh, they could have had a lot of fun with that. They, they could have done one just on the meme of um, Jar Jar Binks being a secret Sith the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of would have liked, like, what if, what if, um, what if Palpatine's power grab failed and somebody else became <laughs> Supreme Chancellor? <laughs> like, like how, how yeah. weird would that have been if, like, Prince, if, if uh, Princess Amidala became Chancellor of the Senate and was the sort of unquestioned master of the Republic during the Clone Wars? What if Amidala's children were really Obi-Wan's, not Anakin's? Oh, now you're going into a weird mm. area. Mm-hmm. Um, what if a little Anakin would have crashed his uh, pod racer and died? Yeah, what if <laughs> in, in rolling wasn't a good maneuver? Yeah, this is a neat trick. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, God, that's awful. It is. It is. Uh, what if they take, um, what if they make a bet with Watto and it doesn't go quite the way they want and they take uh, Anakin's mother and not Anakin? Ooh, here's what, what if uh, Qui-Gon had lived? Yes, sure. Um, or what if Darth Maul had lived? Or what if both of them had lived? Well, I mean, we know Darth Maul lived, but like we didn't know at yeah. the time. The point I'm trying to make is I love what if comics and it's, it's fun to see them do that with the Star Wars every once in a while. Uh, but I, I've gone on long enough, but Thrasher, it sounds like you were watching a vintage documentary, is that right? Yes, I watched uh, From Star Wars to Jedi, The Making of a Saga. It was a 1983 documentary about the making of Star Wars that uh, originally aired on PBS, but would show up. It showed up a lot of places in the 80s, uh, in the 90s. And so it's, it's a documentary about the making of Star Wars that was made while Return of the Jedi was being made. So it covers the entirety of the trilogy. But because it was made, it was being filmed in the background of Return of the Jedi, there's lots of really fascinating, like, deep cut behind the scene things from that particular movie that are uh, in this documentary. It also uh, sort of prefigures uh, Mark Hamill's huge voice acting career. He does all the narration for the uh, for this documentary. Mm. And it's it's really it's really cool. I mean, among other things, because like for a time, you know, back before DVDs and specials features and whatnot, a lot of things that you would normally only see on special features were buried in this documentary. Uh, for instance, this documentary was the first time we saw the uh, Jabba the Hutt footage that was filmed for A New Hope, but never included in the final film. Until the yeah, special when it edition. had the actor, when it had a, a, a Scottish actor playing uh, Jabba. Uh, oh, it was an Irish actor named Irish. Uh, Declan Mulholland, yeah, playing Jabba the Hutt. And, and he, he also kind of looks like a Baron Harkonnen type. And, and it's and it's it's real fascinating to see those scenes and and also they talk about and they talk about how you know George's intention was to cover up the actor with the stop motion special effect, but they just couldn't make it look convincing so that it was dropped uh, and Jabba was saved uh, for the third film. But we see how the Jabba puppet was made, how it was operated. We see the beginning of uh, of the of the Max Rebo band, and that's actually part of it. We, that um, the Max Rebo band they wanted to do kind of a, a musical thing in Jabba's palace the same way they had in the cantina. 
And one of the fascinating things is there's a a bit where George Lucas is touring the shop where they're building all the puppets, and he just kind of says, oh, that one, that one would make a neat singer. Can we put lips on it? And he's pointing to Cy Snoodles. And then they show yeah. they show how the puppet dances. They show the they mm. show like they wrote a so, a song in English and then translated it into Huttese, and it became Lopty Neck. And we hear the and we hear we see this neat sort of footage rehearsal footage of the puppeteer operating size snoodles while the English version of the song plays. Oh, actually, speaking of music, so one thing that's interesting is that there's um. There's a piece of Star Wars music that, to the best of my knowledge, has never appeared on any of the Star Wars uh, soundtracks. Uh, in the scene uh, when Jabba's sail barge is riding out over the desert to the pit of Carcoon, there's this kind of disco porno chic song that's playing this. Um, and... That song is featured in this documentary. It plays in the background of the tour of the Creature Shop. Um, and I don't know if this is true, but the, the urban legend is the reason why that music is not on any of the Star Wars soundtracks is that the master recording of that song was given to the producers of this documentary so that they could use the song, but then the master recording got corrupted or lost. Uh, what I recall hearing is there is a podcast called Star Wars Oxygen that looks at the music from the different movies in um, sometimes excruciating detail. <laughs> and, and, and in Return of the Jedi, they do mention this piece of music, and I believe it is from uh, some one of the hosts of the show uh, was able to track down the album that it's from. Oh my God, because I've been wanting this yeah, song for ages. Right. It is not a John Williams piece. I'm not sure... It doesn't feel very Star Warsy. It, 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 I don't know. It sounds more like a disco number. Well, I mean, but, well, I mean, it's it, it's one of it's like the Cantina song. It's it's just antiquated enough that it's impossible to get dated within the context of the film. Right, and um, if you dig up uh, Star Wars Oxygen on whatever Apple Podcast, or whatever you, you look up podcast on, um, and and kind of skip through the Return of the Jedi episodes you can find where they talk about it. Um, but yeah, I, I know the piece of music you're talking about. And in fact, when I first bought the soundtrack to Return of the Jedi, it actually was the soundtrack to the original trilogy that was a four CD set oh. um, from the 90s. Uh, I was disappointed that track was not on there either. But but you said they they, they found it? So like we, we I could actually track that down myself if I followed their I, instructions? I think if you listen to the Star Wars Oxygen podcast and just start listening to the Return of the Jedi episodes, it's they might have three or four episodes <laughs> um, going track by track through the soundtrack. At some point, they mention that piece of music. Um, Very cool. Oh, one um, other interesting kind of deep cut from uh, this this movie it in, uh, from Return from uh, Star Wars to Jedi. It includes special effects footage that was never used in the final film. Um, they talk a lot about the Rancor sequence and that apparently the original intent was to use stop motion, but it wasn't convincing. So they didn't do it. And they even show the like stop motion armature for that version of the Rancor. And then it was going to be a guy in a suit. They were going to go full Kaiju and they Mm. show footage of them filming with a guy in a suit. And we see a guy get in the suit. We see a guy come out. We see the way it moves. 
and how like it just it looked too much like a guy in a suit no matter what uh tricks they did which is why in the final film it's a puppet it's a hand puppet filmed in slow motion and they show the hand puppet being operated it is delightful to see how small the final version of the rancor is but that that full body suit for the rancor i mean it didn't suit their per- it didn't meet their their sort of design goals but it looks so good i'm kind of shocked it doesn't appear in the background of a different shot as just a creature yeah in one of these uh making of books they had mentioned originally in uh, jabba's palace there there were supposed to be a few scenes with these really tall skinny creature aliens and they built a lot of these puppets and i think there's a few um maybe just like in the background oh you're talking about the yuzums the Yuzums, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Yuzums actually were originally going to be, in an early draft of the script, were going to be other creatures living on Endor. Uh, but yeah, like the puppets just weren't that convincing. There's a there's a Yuzum rod puppet, which you can see in the background of a few shots. In the special edition of Return of the Jedi, Yaz Yuzum is a Yuzum who's the lead singer of the Max Rebo band. He's the guy that sings the deep bass voice parts of mm, the Jedi mm-hmm. Rocks number. And I, I like that Mark Hamill narrates this. I, I saw this as a pack-in for one of the many uh, versions of Star Wars on videotape that was out at the time. This It had this with the, the trilogy. Um, and that is Mark Hamill gives it a nice familiarity. When Lucasfilm released the Star Wars, uh, at the time, complete saga, the, the original and prequel trilogies, on Blu-ray, uh, the disc that had the extras that was only part of the more expensive complete set had the vintage star wars documentaries for um i think the first two films so ones that would have come out in 77 and 80 and the narrator is like this uh deep voiced guy that doesn't sound like um something from star wars at all and it's like luke skywalker a jedi knight picks up the lightsaber in this scene let's see how it was made and and that it is Mark Campbell narrating it for this uh, from Star Wars to Jedi uh, show is just makes it work really well and feel more authentic. It also feels more intimate. And also you have so many, you have so many people with so many great voices. Like I'm shocked that Anthony Daniels, Carrie Fisher and Mark Campbell don't just narrate every Star Wars documentary or retrospective. Billy D. Williams did one. Oh, that's right. Damn. He's got a good voice. And uh, one of the, you mentioned Anthony Daniels. Uh, right before Attack of the Clones came out in theaters, Fox showed um, the trilogy plus Phantom Menace on TV. And as bumpers, they did scenes with C-3PO and R2-D2 kind of looking at the history of the Skywalkers. Wow, I'd like to check that footage out yeah, if it still exists yeah, somewhere. It, it's pretty neat. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, but uh, it never... I, I don't know if they ever put it on any of the multiple home video releases or not, um, but it, it's it, it was I think sort of a clever way to add some filler material as you re-airing these movies that have been on TV a million times. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Um, so next week, what are we going to be talking about? Well, we're going to be talking about the next episode, "The New King," season one, episode six. Yep. The Return of the King. Uh, it might have been something else. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Boy. Yeah. All right. Um, 
So you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Listen to the show at uh, SequelCast2.com. But like, subscribe, comment, all all that jazz. Also, uh, check out the band that did our theme music, their awesome cover of In Trouble Again, the Droids theme song. That is by the Cybertronic Spree. That is right. So, for In Trouble Again, a Star Wars Droids podcast, this is Matt. <laughs> and this is Thrasher. Saying, Guzebon Kaigoshu? You did what to my mother? Bashogon Kiban! Ah, that's alright then. Beep boop, 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 boop.